Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. A lot of suburban residents scorn Seattle for being overrun with homeless encampments. But these suburbs don't usually provide shelter for their own residents. They'd rather those folks go overrun Seattle. Well, this week, a King County suburb became an exception to that rule. We will tell you that story, among others. First, let me introduce my guests to you. Local journalists, Public Cola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. Hi again. Hey, Bill. Nice to see you. Good Seattle see you. Times has sent us two <laughs> of their reporters. Transportation Beat, David Croman. Welcome back. Hello. And senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone, welcome back. Hey, Bill. Good to see you both. And, and I can see you if I'm watching this show on YouTube, which I can do. So can you just search KUOW. Um, by the way, before we get into our first topic, I want to invite you, listener, to our all of you, to our annual Year in Review event. We do it every year. This time it's at the Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center. It's Thursday, December 14th. Thursday the 14th, 7.30 p.m. Find out uh, all the information and then join us. Just go to KUOW.org slash events. Okay, let's get into the news. We're going to start with, when I say salmon, what do you picture? Ballard Locks? Or, Pike Place Market. Pike Place Market, yes. Cedar River, uh, you know, splashing right. or indigenous art. A bear's mouth, bagel and locks. In some way, we, you know, I think the word iconic is overused, but not when it comes to salmon in this region. It's part of who we are. It's part of our ecosystem. We all want to save salmon, but oh, the money, David, <laughs> the money just just to help salmon pass underneath roads as ordered by a federal judge. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a doozy. I mean, so the. You know, like as you said, a federal court said that um, you know Washington State needed to honor its treaties, uh, and part of that was removing barriers for salmon to migrate upstream mm-hmm. um, or you know return to the ocean. You know, go both directions. Um, the the biggest barrier is culverts, basically big big tubes that go under roads. That uh, we've all seen them, the concrete or yep. or metal pipes under the roads. Yep, um, and those you know had had been a big problem for uh, the reproduction and breeding of salmon. Um, so Why is this, it a problem? It helps them get through. But, you know, they, they were maybe too narrow mm-hmm. or there you know, wasn't enough water flow. I, you know, the plenty of reasons why they were not adequate. Yeah. Um, so the state was ordered to, to replace these and they have been doing that. And it, they've been spending a lot of money doing that. They thought it would cost them about $4 billion. Um, but we just recently learned that it's not going to cost $4 billion. It's going to cost closer to $8 billion, which okay. is um, a pretty massive increase um, and kind of the result of uh, estimates or predictions for what it would take that were kind of too remedial or too broad um, based on some assumptions around, you know, they, they for example, they thought um, smaller stream would cost less money to fix when, in fact, a lot of smaller streams – run under, you know, for example, Port Angeles, <laughs> like mm-hmm. entire city blocks uh, to the point where in order for the state to fix the culverts and help that stream, they might have to buy an entire hotel uh, so that they can get underneath it and fix that culvert. So, um, you know, they've made a decent amount of progress. They think that they're about 80% of the way to their goal, or they will be um, within the next couple of years, and they have the money to do that. But it's that final 10% to get to 90%, which is what the court said they needed to do, that's going to cost billions and billions of dollars because we're talking about culverts that run under I-90 or I-5. I mean, these are massive projects that are going to require whole highways to be torn out and replaced. I want to hear your questions. I have one more, which is, does a federal judge care how much it costs? I mean, treaty rights are treaty rights. Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. Um, I worked on the story with my colleague, Mike Riker, who's kind of a little more steeped in this world than I am. But but it, it does sound like there was possibly um, some part of the ruling that allowed for, you know, if things uh, really got kind of too big for the state to handle, theoretically, people could, you know, the state could come back and kind of talk to the judge. So far, we haven't gotten any indication that the state wants to do that because – you know, if you open up the legal, you know, because it took them a long time to get to this agreement with the tribes and the court and for everybody to kind of be on the same page. So to go back to the court and reopen that, 
has a lot of risks to it. Um, some Republicans have, have suggested that they do that. Um, Governor Inslee and the chairs of the House and Senate Transportation Committee so far have not uh, said that that's an option. Yeah, it's kind of baffling to me. And, and one of the most striking things in your story, David, was that um, that they just sort of didn't um, look into what these what these culvert you know revamps would cost, and that there was just this assumption that well, if it's smaller, it costs less. Um, I mean, I think that it it just speaks to sort of the way that the state doesn't always plan very well for big transportation projects. And we see this with massive overruns with basically every mega project that we've had. But even on these, you know, these quote unquote little projects like culverts underneath Port Angeles, I mean, it is just massively underestimated. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, to start, they had basically they would take all their culverts and put them into three buckets, small, medium or large. And that was kind of their broad. And then, you know, they would price them like that. That's like a very zoomed out perspective on it because this these cost increases, you know, those they, they came to that four bill initial four billion dollars through, you know, planning estimates, which is a much more kind of broad way of looking at these big projects. The The newest dollar figure comes from what was always going to have to happen, which is engineers actually on the ground pricing out what this project's going to look like. And mm-hmm. it was at that stage that they realized, oh, like we thought this stream was small. In fact, we need to tear out an entire road and build a brand new bridge in order to fix this culvert. Yeah. So when it comes to culverts or road projects, projects that are, well, it turns out way more expensive than we told you, how much should we as uh, residents, taxpayers, how much should we believe our governments when they say, nothing we can do, we made our best estimates, costs keep going up? You know, is is that, is it just, the, it's just as simple as that? Uh, no, I mean, I think it, I think it varies. I mean, I, I think there are some pretty legitimate questions around how they came to these estimates to begin with. Um, because it's, because it's a court mandated project, it's possible they were going to have to spend this $8 billion no matter what. Um, it's just a kind of a rude surprise that we're finding out this late that it's going to cost this much. Mm. Um, you know, some of the other projects, you know, we could segue into, for example, the um, 520 bridge between Montlake and I-5 over Portage Bay. That's mm-hmm. going to be at least $500 million more expensive than we previously thought. Right. Um, you know, that there are a lot of reasons behind that. I do think a lot of it is just sort of national pressures that, that lots of industries or lots of transportation departments are facing around staff shortages and supply chain and cost. But also, you know, I mean, Washington used to kind of be the only place, not the only place, a place in the country that was just much busier uh, building, you know, big construction projects. We have sound transit and um, building these new highways. And we didn't have a lot of competition with other states in the country for labor to come and do that. Now with this infrastructure bill at the federal level, um, contractors just have a lot more options. Uh, competition for staff is a lot is a lot higher, and so therefore, you know, their their price for taking on what are pretty risky projects, some of these highway projects, has just gone way up because um, they don't quite have the same capacity that they used to because of staffing shortages, and also they have just a lot more freedom to pick and choose which projects they want, which feel less risky, and therefore, it's just you know the supply and demand is driving up the cost on on these mega projects. I think too that you, you can't exclude, you know, sort of the business model that government contractors use, and it, you often see these same contractors that are doing the state jobs, doing federal jobs that are perpetual overruns. And uh, when I covered the nuclear weapons industry, uh, the Government Accountability Office had had the Department of Energy on its watch list for like 25 years. They remained there as a high risk for fraud and abuse by contractors, and that's because the money never runs out. You know, and what we don't see any discussion of is what is a red line for us? What is a hard stop? What costs just too much to proceed with a project or to scale it back? And so I think we're looking at such a massive amount of transportation projects just alone. If we were to look at the $4 billion spike for salmon and, uh, you know, the half billion for 520 over Portage Bay that you have to wonder, are we, you know, in store for a really super extravagant transportation bill uh, with the legislative session ahead? Or are they going to look for creative ways to find other pools of money, maybe pull from DNR resources for the salmon, for instance? But what that doesn't change is 
regardless, it's still $4 billion in public funds. And I think that uh, one thing that we haven't seen here in Washington State is anybody say, what is our hard stop on this? We just kind of see these zombie projects keep on going and the intent to fulfill them. But there haven't been really any hard choices made. Well, I think that, you know, to that point, a lot of hard choices have not been made about other transportation projects. We have uh, we have projects that, uh, you know, are massive, you know, I, I would say boondoggles like the bridge over the freeway expansion between Oregon and Washington, for example, like the Alaskan Way Viaduct Replacement Project, for example, that just get money shoveled at them, you know, almost infinitely um, with no sort of regard for, you know, are these projects necessary? Do we have to expand 405? That's a discussion that's been going on for, you know, the 23 years that I've been here and probably long before that as well. Um, 167, there's a highway expansion that could be scaled back. I mean, these are all decisions that have been made and could be unmade, um, you know, if we were to actually actually consider, you know, whether we need these projects. I mean, look at the tunnel. The tunnel, you know, was this, you know, massive overrun project that cost tons of money that, we, you know, we were sold or was going to be uh, paid for in part with tolls that have failed to materialize because the demand for that tunnel is no longer there and pro- probably was never there. So I think that, you know, big picture, the state should probably be reconsidering some of these massive highway projects that, you know, that we can still scale back on in order to pay for obligations like these salmon culverts that is, you know, a federal, a federally mandated obligation that I think that, you know, there will be some real penalties. And David, maybe you know more, but uh, there will be some real penalties if the state says, ah, oh, we can't do this because it's just too expensive. Well, and some people would say the same about uh, the sound transit expansion. And, you know, we, you get into the stuff, you know, the more the more you like the project, the more vital you think it is. Right. Um, well, let's can we talk about the money that's coming in <laughs> mm-hmm. to pay for whatever we're going to build and make? Um, I'm thinking of the carbon auctions that Washington State does. We basically charge big carbon polluters. We sell them the right to pollute. And those auctions have raised a billion and a half dollars. Some people hate it, want to want to get it repealed, maybe by voter initiative. That so that's that's taken away a stream of money, whether you like that or not. But what's going on with that idea of repealing the carbon auctions? Yeah, the, I th- I think um, the carbon auction the, the carbon auction money is going to look really appealing to uh, basically all lawmakers in this session. Um, Republicans included. I mean, Republicans who opposed it. I mean, the money's there, so they're going to want to compete for it. Um, I think that a lot of I, I would expect that there would be a lot of competition for that money to go towards ferries. Um, but also now that this culvert dollar is so much higher, I think that's I, I would I would guess that they would at least consider moving some of that money towards culverts. As you alluded to, though, the problem for from that logic is that there's an initiative that um, I don't know if it's actually been certified yet, but it appears that they have plenty of signatures to get it on the ballot that would um, basically repeal that carbon auction. So that, and, you know, I mean, um, I I think anyone, the question on the ballot is going to be about, the campaign is going to be about gas, you know, the price of your gas and how much you're paying for gas. Um, And it's going to be about taxes, which when, when uh, initiatives like that go on the ballot, they often tend to do pretty well. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, the carbon auction dollars were actually repealed. We're a long way from that. I'm not making any predictions, but I, I wouldn't count that out at all, in which case um, that is another uh, revenue stream that lawmakers, again, including Republicans, are looking at to solve some of these problems. I think there's just a lot of chaos around around the carbon credit law, even though I think that it's accomplishing what everybody hoped it would to this point. There's still very much a let's wait and see whether it delivers all of its promises around it. And uh, I know there are still folks that are skeptical and there are others that feel like it's just wonderful, you know, and they've uh, tapped into it and are doing heat pumps and telling their neighbors to get heat pumps and stuff. But uh, what do you mean by deliver its promises? It's not like the temperature is going to is going to go down because of. (laughs) Carbon auctions. So I how should would say we know? it's fiscal promises. Okay. The, the promises of all that it's going to solve in terms of both uh, monetarily, the monetary benefits, but then also I think that the green benefits of it depend on it being carried through to fulfillment. You know, if they pulled the plug right now, I think it would only add to the chaos. Uh, but 
you know, passage of a specific initiative that aims to undercut it would be very interesting in the sense that I think Democrats would be banging their head against the wall about how could this have happened. Uh, but love it as they might. You can argue you can't argue with the will of the people. And if this is something that is embraced by the citizens, you know, this is something that has been a real priority of this administration and a lot of the people who are on board with it. But uh, it really does remain to be seen whether there's much support for repealing this or whether we have just a lot of bluster from one person who's got a lot of money and is really excited about it. I think what gives it salience is that as as the carbon auction was being considered and passed, it was, you know, it was downplayed how much of an effect that this would have on gas prices. I should say we don't know exactly how much of an effect it has on gas prices because there's not a lot of transparency around that. There are going to be bills this legislative session that would force these oil companies to sort of say how much they're passing on to consumers. But regardless of what exactly is happening behind the scenes, Washington's gas prices have gone up faster than uh, the rest of the countries. And I think that in, has... In fact, can I can I share yeah, some news? I don't know if anyone else has seen this, but I just saw this morning on King 5 that a former state economist is suing two state agencies and the governor's office. Yeah. He said his career was ruined for his refusal to lie about how a new state policy, what we're talking about, would jack up prices at the pump by 45 to 50 cents per gallon. He claimed these state officials retaliated against him for refusing to keep quiet about his forecast. Yeah, and um, I don't know. I I read that story this morning. I have no insight into the credence of his complaints. You know, I the gas prices have gone up by around forty five to fifty cents a gallon. Um, again, whether that is uh, you know total honesty on the part of the oil companies, we don't know what's going on. But gas prices have gone up by around that much, and that. Um, you know, again, when you're talking about gas prices and something people see every day, we see this in public opinion polls, presidential approval. It correlates almost perfectly with the price of gas. Mm-hmm. It's a, just a really salient thing that people see every day and fill up. And um, that's why I think I, um, I, it would be foolish to discount um, this initiative because people feel this and they feel it every day. I mean, I think to um, to Patrick's point, I mean, this is uh, there is a hedge fund manager in Redmond who is funding a whole bunch of these. And my I would be really curious. There's six different initiatives that might be on the ballot. One is, um, you know, this is obviously the most high profile right now. Um, one is to repeal the state capital gains tax as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'll be curious to see how many get on the ballot and whether there is, you know, voter confusion if there are six different sort of right wing initiatives on the ballot to repeal various taxes. If, you know, uh, if one is, you know, more heavily sold, if, if, if it's all about this carbon tax. Uh, repeal or if it ends up, you know, sort of confusing voters because there's six different, you know, repeal repeal the tax initiatives on the ballot in front mm-hmm. of them. And, you know, who knows? I mean, sometimes when, when we're faced with 15 Tim Iman initiatives on one ballot, we just vote no on all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a little early to say how people are going to come down on this and whether they're going to be convinced by this idea that, you know, as David said, the oil companies are, you know, being uh, straightforward and honest and fair players like, like they always are, yeah. you know, or or if people are a little more skeptical um, when when it comes to uh, repealing some of these taxes. Well, Erica, before we take a break, this idea of repealing the state capital gains tax figures into budget talks that Seattle is having right now. That's right. Um, the city of Seattle was going to pass or was considering a very small capital gains tax locally that would be uh, patterned off the state capital gains tax. Is Decide- that totally legal? Is that going to withstand? If, I, if I think it's that? I think it's totally legal, okay. but I'm not a lawyer. Okay. But um, you know, I, I'm sure there there might be an appeal of it once it if and when it does pass. But they uh, decided to hold off on that this week. I think for political reasons, they don't want to pass a local tax that could um, you know potentially harm chances of the state tax um, you know withstanding this uh, this vote this potential vote next year. Um, they just didn't want to muddy the waters with an extra tax locally. Um, I think that um, then puts into question, you know, whether there's going to be a capital gains tax locally, because, of course, we're going to have a new council next year. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, the, one of the council's more conservative members, a self-identified centrist, Alex Peterson, was behind this capital gains tax proposal. Um, it would have offset uh, the city's water tax. They were kind of a pair, uh, repeal the water tax, pass the capital gains tax. Because um, the capital gains tax would be taxing rich people right. as opposed to a water tax. Right. And there is there's also some real questions about the viability of that capital gains tax to be stable year after year because 
Uh, most of it, um, according to uh, city research, is based on 163 people in the city of Seattle, which is just, you know, a mind-bogglingly, you know, volatile uh, source of funds because those folks can, you know, move. They can hide their money elsewhere. There's yeah. there's tax avoidance that's, like, pretty easy if you're talking about a city versus tax avoidance moving out of the state. So. Um, there's real questions about how viable that tax is going to be, you know, as a, as a stable revenue source uh, in the long term anyway. Okay, that's a that's a lot of money talk. Uh, where it's coming, <laughs> where it's going. Uh, do we pretty much cover it for now? Uh, and, and we'll take a break. I, I, we have the, 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 the initiatives. Um, I know they're, they're going to turn their signatures in next uh, this month. Now it's December. And so that could go to the legislature this next year. Anything else listeners ought to know about? What happens with the money coming and going? I think we got you. Okay. <laughs> That's, it. That's a lot. Um, so that is just the beginning of Week in Review. We're going to take a short break, come right back, cover some of the other big news of the week. I mentioned this, um, the uh, attitude of suburban cities towards Seattle when it comes to homelessness. And we had a little wrinkle in that. Interesting story out of Burien that we'll tell you about in a moment. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. You are listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with my local journalist panel, the Seattle Times' David Croman and Patrick Malone, and Publicola's Erica Barnett. And I'm inviting you to our Year in Review live on stage event. This year it's at the Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center, and it's happening Thursday evening, December 14th. To find out how to get there, go to KUOW.org slash events. Okay, on with the news of the week. We talk a lot about homelessness in Seattle, but there are people without homes all over our region. What are those suburban communities doing about it? Well, in Burien, for more than a year, a few dozen people have been living outside around a couple of city blocks in the city center of Burien. The city has banned outdoor camping. That just, I think, goes into effect today. And so there have been no alternatives, though, to to encampments. There are no shelters there. A Burian church is trying to allow tents in its parking lot, and the city's threatening legal action to stop them. For months, the city of Burian's been debating, should we build shelters? And the county has offered them a million dollars if they do, Erica. And this week, the city council decided to do what? Uh, they decided to take the money at an almost 11th hour, literally, uh, vote on Monday night. They held a special meeting um, that was not scheduled previously after voting, uh, essentially uh, deadlocking last week, um, taking no decision. So they're going to accept this money. Um, they want to build the shelter on, which will be sort of a tiny house village style shelter of some kind. We don't know who the provider is going to be. That's all to be determined. Um, and it's land owned by Seattle City Light that is uh, in the city of Burien. So there is going to be some sort of shelter probably for um, some small number of people, um, which is, you know, which is a new thing in Burien. They don't have a year round shelter that is available to everybody. So um, it's a it's a sign of. Uh, a, a movement at least temporary towards allowing shelter in the city. Yeah, well, what about this movement? Is there a trend of more, will more suburban cities be building shelters in exchange for county money? Well, this is federal money, so it was sort of a one-off situation where there's federal money that's flowing through the county. It's going to go away. It's part of those ARPA funds that flowed in after um, because of COVID. Okay. So I, I don't predict any um, any trend towards um, you know be a, a friendlier environment. I mean, this was an incredibly contentious vote. Um, that, as, as I said, was very last minute. And um, the public comment got incredibly heated. Um, a lot of accusations of, you know, Seattle is sending uh, its homeless people here. Um, the, the mechanism was never clear about how we were doing that. Um, but, you know, it's pretty clear that the folks from talking to homeless service providers, that these are Burian folks that have been there for a long time. 
Um, and so incredibly contentious vote. They, too, are getting a new city council um, in uh, next year um, with uh, the person who was most instrumental in making this happen. This vote in particular happened. Sydney Moore uh, got voted out. So, um, you know, I, I think that in general, there is there is a, an overall hostility in the suburban areas and in suburban cities to providing this kind of shelter and to sort of providing homeless services, which, you know, speaks to the difficulties of having a truly regional approach when, you know, Seattle is bought in and King County government is brought in. But most of these cities are not bought in to the idea of, uh, of a regional approach. It seemed like that was always the kind of uh, essential question mark or weakness, maybe you could say, about the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, which is, uh, you know, it's it's bringing together all these suburban cities can you ever get all these suburban cities and Seattle and King County government to agree on which direction they're paddling? Yeah. I mean, and I think that the answer right now is is no. I mean, KCRHA, the Homelessness Authority, is essentially an, an, an administrative body that, you know, all, now all the money that was going through one channel is going through KCRHA, but it's the same essential money. It's the city of Seattle and King County. And um, and the suburban cities aren't paying into it. But more importantly, I think they're just not philosophically philosophically bought in. I mean, I think regionalism is a really hard sell. Um, you know, it, I, it, there was sort of this this process that led to this agency. But, you know, it's just kind of passing the buck so far. I mean, so much of suburban King County gets its whole identity from we're not Seattle. Mm -hmm. And that's a very prevalent attitude of residents in these places too. But I think there's a growing acknowledgement that when Seattle sneezes, the suburbs catch a cold. So we've got a lot of the same cultural problems, the same infrastructure problems. And I think that the biggest barrier to these, some of these things might even be just the way that these communities view each other. Um, but even with the progress that has been made this week, and I thought I just have to compliment Erica's story. I thought she did a wonderful job of at Publicola, by the way. at Publicola that did just an outstanding job of uh, capturing all the many moving parts of this that make it really what could be a prolonged and intractable intractable problem. Uh, you've got just divergent views on council. You've got uh, even the expiration of this grant being used as a potential time bomb to end the effort altogether. I know that didn't go anywhere, but I mean, there's an eyeball on it. So taking the money is one thing, but accomplishing what everyone hopes for is very much another. And I think the divisions on council threaten to really prolong this already drawn out process. We've talked about this contentious meeting. I want to play a little bit of audio and ask you about it, Erica. This is homeowner uh, Stephanie Rogers expressing her concerns about these new pallet homes. There should be no question about putting it next to a school. No way. And neither in a neighborhood. There's trash all up and down. There's fires. Our trees are miss missing. Broken down vehicles. It's not safe. There's no services. There's no infrastructure. And at the same meeting, um, testifying were people who might live in these shelters, including this resident of this now illegal tent encampment. We are not these horrible people that everyone is making us out to be. We're just people that are going through a hard time and, you know, didn't have family or didn't have resources to help us stay in where we were. So, Eric, Iberian is not that big a place. These are neighbors. Are these people who are sound so opposed, are they talking to one another face to face? That's a great question. I mean, it certainly doesn't um, seem I mean, I would say that people who are sort of demonizing um, a very small group of homeless people and saying that they are responsible for cutting down trees and uh, broken down cars all over the city and trash and all these things. I mean, it is it is almost um, it defies logic that it is possible for you know, 30 or so people to be responsible for all the crime in Burien as it has been attributed to them. I mean, I think public comment does tend to heighten people's um, <laughs> the, the kind of things that people will say, but the things that are said in public um, have been pretty shocking. Um, so I think there is a real divide between uh, the two sides on this. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I think that the only way to really bridge that is if this encampment is, or, or sorry, this shelter is allowed to go into place and is a success. Um, tiny house villages um, are located all over King County. There's some in Tacoma. 
Um, but this, you know, this will be an unusual one in, in a suburb. Um, I, I just want to say one thing about the the school comment. There's a, a private school uh, located there, um, somewhat near where the shelter will be, or actually quite near, but it is separated from the shelter by um, a very large 180 foot buffer of blackberry bushes, and they have an extremely large fence all around the school. So, um, you know, it's there's a lot of hyperbole going on, I would say, on on one side. And uh, and uh, it did not prevail this time. Right. It almost is reminiscent of and it was really sad this week that the author, John Nichols, uh, I don't know if anybody else read his work like Milagro Beanfield War died. Oh, yeah. uh, there was a character in Milagro Beanfield War and it was called El Brazo de Onofre, which was the arm of Onofre. And this guy had lost an arm in a farming accident. And every time something went wrong in this little town of Milagro, they naturally blamed the missing arm of Onofre, you know. So there's always this uh, specter of looking for someone to blame. And it does sound like there's been a lot of uh, you know, drawing conclusions about who is in this homeless population. And I think a closer look at it would show that these are a lot of people. Some of them are migrants. You know, this church that's that's been housing people there has really accommodated a lot of migrants who didn't have anywhere else to go. And I think that uh, some of the disconnect here is just that the suburbs haven't had the visible homelessness that Seattle has. And now that they have, they're drawing some conclusions about it. And uh, it's helping to form opinions. And uh, often there's just this attitude of exclusion that somebody made poor choices or somebody is a bad person because they're in this lot in life. And that isn't always the case. Um, it does make me wonder to your question, Bill, are people really talking with each other? Well, you mentioned um, m- migrants. Erica, isn't there a requirement that mm, was, is it 90% of people who would go into this shelter have to be quote unquote from Burien. I'm not sure how they measure that. Yeah, there's a couple of requirements that the city of Burien tried to put into the legislation. I don't think either are going to be um, are going to, you know, I'll say be legally binding in the sense that it's not up to the city of Burien to write the um, the request for proposals for this. I mean, it's kind of out of their hands. But yeah, they said that they want everybody or 90% of the people to be from Burien uh, undefined how they determine that. Um, and um, there's uh, some requirements around drugs and alcohol um, that um, were put into the legislation. Um, one, I mean, one really specific one is that they can't even is that people who come onto the premises cannot be under the influence of anything. Um, and I don't think that that is um, in any way legally enforceable. You would have to drug test people at the door. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of wish fulfillment uh, in the legislation, but I don't think that it's going to be possible to enforce a lot of that stuff. That part of your story really just created a, a picture in my mind of what is the police state that, you know, guards traffic coming in and out of this place going to be like if that if that proposal is there it's like how are you going to tell if someone is under the influence and is it going to become a heavy-handed environment that just you know doesn't accomplish what you set out to do because it deters participation well not just that i mean yeah exactly it deters participation and it, and there is a, a preference in the county for low barrier shelter and so there there can be requirements and there probably will be requirements that people can't use uh, drugs or alcohol on site or in the surrounding area that does exclude people and that leaves those people who are you know in active addiction out in the cold and actually on the streets of Burien where people say they don't want them to be. So when you put these restrictions, I mean, even if, you know, even if it is, quote unquote, because of choices of their own, um, that that is and that and that is a problem with the legislation that banned camping in the city, too. You know, it says that if you can't go into a clean and sober shelter because you are not clean and sober, then you are breaking the law. Mm. So there's a lot of restrictions in the city of Burien that are pretty harsh and pretty, um, I would say, unrealistic, um, given uh the realities of, you know, being homeless. Okay, still some decisions to come um, on this now approved uh, shelter, pallet shelter area in Burien. So we'll keep following that. We've also been following the trial of three Tacoma police officers charged with manslaughter and murder after a man, Manuel Ellis, died in their custody. Patrick, this is not just about these four men. It could be a test case for a new state law as well. The prosecution has made its case against these officers. The defense is now making its case. What And you're, you're attending. What have you learned? Well, uh, I've, I've learned how to get to the courthouse in 
Tacoma before the sun comes up, for, among <laughs> other things. But I think the the probably the most important thing that I've learned about this is that I nine forty, the police accountability law that was passed first by voters in twenty eighteen and then the legislature in twenty nineteen, is really. Uh, up in the air with this trial, because I think it's going to define a lot of things. It, it removed the barrier of malicious intent in order to charge an officer for an on-duty death. And so I think people thought it's just going to open the floodgates on officers being charged with assault, officers being charged with homicide. Um, but the truth of the matter is that I think that a lot depends on how this trial comes out. If these officers all are acquitted in like a 15 minute deliberation. I think that you're going to see prosecutors in other jurisdictions wonder whether it's worth their time and are they realistically going to get convictions, you know, from a jury, from a jury, because it's one thing to be able to charge officers. It's another to sit there and hear the literal argument. Uh, You know, this happened during opening statements and the judge recommended, you know, he admonished the jury to ignore it. But one of the defense lawyers said, Hey, uh, my client spent eight years in the army and five as a cop and the community should treat him as uh, respectfully as he has treated them. And, you know, that says nothing about what happened on the night that Manuel Ellis died. It actually gets to the core of why I-940 was passed, which is just because you're a police officer, you cannot kill with impunity. So there's really a lot at stake here. And it might not be the read to take these cues from. I mean, Tacoma is a place that is known to be very pro-police. There was a trial in January of the Pierce County Sheriff. He was acquitted in the same courtroom where I'm watching this trial. So, you know, uh, it could be that this trial will really set the tone for whether I-940 has any practical teeth in the future or not, because uh, an acquittal here of all three would make for some very reluctant prosecutors. And I'll just say that I know a lot of families who have lost loved ones to, uh, you know, the police have been attending this trial and showing support for the Ellis family, trying to get a look at what justice looks like, the justice they will never get. And uh, it's hard. This is not easy for the victims' families either because, you know, uh, the system rightfully is weighted in favor of the defendant. You know, the onus is on the state to prove this. But in doing so, it really casts the victim as you know, someone else who's on trial. And so for someone who's already been through losing a loved one under circumstances that are are very difficult and sudden like this, they've now got to go then not only relive this lowest moment in their lives, but the lowest moments in their loved one's life that preceded this. So Mm. it's really, it's a heartbreaking thing. And it's really, I've covered over 350 murder trials. I covered for almost a decade. I would go to a courthouse in the morning write my stories and go home at night without ever setting a foot in the newsroom. And I've never seen a police officer on trial for murder in all those. So it's a foreign experience for all of us. And uh, I think that it's also exposing some flaws in I-940. There are some things that I-940 prohibitions that it puts on things like disparaging the deceased in, in the media. You cannot circulate a story that is like, uh, uh, you know, we unfortunately had to kill this man last night and hear all the horrible things he did, which was common practice when police killed in the past. And I-940 prohibits that. But it doesn't change that These are the things that are still the focal point in court. Mm. So, you know, I, I have to say that I think it's exposing some warts of I-940, but it also could be what either lifts or buries I-940 for future use. Okay. Do you do you get the sense that there is sort of a movement yet, or do we just not not know it's too early to sort of um, I don't know pass additional uh, legislation initiatives to you know add more teeth to I nine forty or to to fix some of those flaws that you're talking about? Like it it just seems like I mean yes this this the outcome of this trial will be dispositive in some way like in terms of what I nine forty can do, but. Then we go on from there and they'll still be, you know, whatever happens, they'll still be, uh, you know, cops killing people and uh, a movement for reform. So are you hearing anything else yet? I haven't heard anything concrete. But what I can say is there are a lot of criticisms from the governor's office on down to lawmakers, to uh, lawyers (laughs) on both sides of the aisle, both prosecutors and defense, about certain aspects of this law that they have not worked in practice. And I think uh, we could look at the attorney general. Uh, in the middle of 2020, he decided to review 
you know, how well in the first six months of this did law enforcement agencies really uh, implement I-940? And they'd done a horrible job, overwhelmingly, like every one of them had gotten a great deal wrong. And so obviously there are things that need fixing. I think there needs to be a closer look. And I think we need one of these. I always call for one of these, Bill, when I visit a super expensive Washington state study on how well these agencies are following I-940. It could be that the disconnect is in uh, implementation and practice and not in the infrastructure of the law itself. But to be sure, there are parts of it that have been difficult for law enforcement to follow. I'm sure they would like to see reforms to it. And undoubtedly, there will be things that probably need fixes, but I have not heard concrete steps in that direction. Okay, we, we need to take another break. We've got more news of the week to discuss. Uh, when we come back, we just had an election, which would have been different if the year had ended with an even number. We'll be right back. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review with Public Cola's Erica Barnett and the Seattle Times' David Croman and Patrick Malone. I'm Bill Radke. We've talked about some stuff in depth uh, so far. We are near the end of the show. I want to touch on a few news items more briefly. Uh, Seattle Pet Care Company sold for $2.3 billion. A private equity firm Blackstone is buying Rover, which has been around a dozen years, headquartered downtown, offices in Spokane, and Barcelona, and London, and Berlin, $2 billion, and I've never met anyone who works there. Uh, they arrange pet sitting, and dog walking, and boarding, and very successfully, as uh, as the price tag would uh, would suggest. GeekWire did a big spread about how they have dozens of dogs in the office, and they come to the meeting. <laughs> and uh, apparently, it says the, there are two walks of shame at Rover. One by the dog who makes a mess on the office carpet and one for the dog owner who has to go fetch one of the available rug doctor machines to clean it up. Um, Washington Congress member Adam Smith says his house was vandalized by people advocating for a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza. Uh, Congressman Smith says the extremism on both the left and right side of our political spectrum is a threat to a healthy functioning democracy and has been condoned for far too long. Extremism on both sides is degrading to our political system and must be rooted out for our democracy to be able to persist. Starbucks is making it easier for employees to put a pause on mobile orders if the store gets too busy. This has been a labor demand in union talks. Mobile ordering now accounts for more than a quarter of all U.S. sales. I read that the app makes it easier to personalize your order, which means more money because Starbucks charges you for those extras. I'm not sure why it's easier to personalize your order on mobile than in the store. Any experience with that? I think maybe they mishear you. No. Okay. Or, right. you know, have you ever, you know, you tell Maybe you them, feel embarrassed about asking for four different personalizations on your drink in person. But. And then you find your name, Bill, spelled Billiam, on your Starbucks cup. Uh, new buildings in the state will have to have heat pumps or something at least as energy efficient. The State Building Industry Association called it an assault on energy security and vowed to keep fighting it in court, uh, getting to our uh, various carbon. Um, you know, climate mitigation discussion earlier. Um, Seattle recorded its 70th homicide, the most in a single year, uh, most of them gun-related. Hurricane Ridge reopened, Olympic National Park. You know, the lodge burned down this spring. A bunch of snow fell at Stevenson Snoqualmie Passes. 30 semis spun out on I-90, but it's about to rain there, so it's not going to be enough to open the ski areas. Crystal Mountain, however, open. And uh, finally, the Huskies and the Ducks play tonight for the Pac-12 championships. I say tonight. If you're listening to the repeat broadcast of our show or on podcast, then you already know who won. <laughs> and what a game it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also saw this morning uh, Wazoo said they've reached a scheduling agreement with the Mountain West Conference. So Boise State, Wyoming, Hawaii, which is a mountain state. Hawaii is a mountain state. Colorado State. Colorado State. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool that there's a conference just based around whether there's a mountain in your in your state or not. Um, and I guess that's not the same as the Cougars officially joining the Mountain West, but all of this is in flux. David, you're shaking your head. Oh, I don't know. I just love the love the idea of the Pac two. The Pac two, yeah. <laughs> WSU and OSU, and they're fighting over. So all these other schools left and so osu and washington state are saying 
okay, so we're the only ones in the conference, so that's our money that's still in the conference, right? Yeah. And the rulings go back and forth. That's in the Supreme Court right now, so it kind of depends on how many like UW grads there are right. in the court. Uh, and and finally, the uh, the King County elections certified the results of the November election. Do you suppose it was easier than usual to certify the results because so few people voted? <laughs> <laughs> it was what? Except for they had to evacuate the buildings a couple times because of those uh, powdered letters that went to them. So, yes, powdered know. letters. Yeah, that know, is true. I don't know what was in the powder. But it was like a third, 37% voting turnout in King County and statewide, I believe. Lowest, to, the Seattle Times, I read, uh, said that's the lowest total for a general election in state history since records started being kept in the 30s. Why was it so low? <laughs> uh, that, that's a great question. I don't, I, I'm talking, but I don't know the answer to that, no. <laughs> as is perhaps my want. But I mean, it's local elections. Yeah, it's not but, a... I mean, but I, well, what I was going to say is I, I don't know why turnout was so low. Local elections do tend to have very low turnout. There's no mayoral race this year. However, there were seven district council races on the Seattle ballot anyway. And I mean, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of votes dividing the winning candidate from the losing candidate in these races. Um, so, uh, you know, that is that is why I, I would make a pitch for local elections as the most exciting elections that mm. uh, that are out there where your vote actually can make a difference. Um, but, man, voter apathy in a in a city where all you have to do is literally like walk to a mailbox, walk to a drop box um, is pretty, uh, pretty pathetic. Um, I would say, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, it, it, I don't know who makes it easier than we do. To I vote. was, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was talking to a person who shall be unnamed, a friend and sort of uh, almost talking them, uh, you know, uh, off the ledge of sitting at home and not walking two blocks to their ballot box, like at 749 PM on election night. Wow. And that's somebody who's friends with me. I mean, like I, I am, you know, the, the biggest booster of voting in your local elections that I know. So, I mean, it's just, it blows the mind. I mean, I vote when I get my ballot personally, but um, I don't know what we can do. Maybe we're going to talk about even your elections. Yes. I wonder if like, because there is no sort of single citywide issue or no statewide issue, there just isn't that kind of like momentum. I think of the last time there were seven seats up for election, at least in Seattle, this is a Seattle perspective. But, you know, Amazon dumped all that money in and it's sort of, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were tweeting about it. And it sort of gave the whole election like a sort of unifying theme that maybe people turned out for. Well, this time, I just don't know what that yeah. was. There wasn't like a single narrative. And then therefore, maybe it was a little harder for people to like even remember that there was an election. I, I don't know. And it's you're voting always. in these district elections that right. are – and, uh, you know, I will I will just say um, that I have heard from a number of observers um, – this is not entirely my observation that there was an issue with candidate quality this time. There wasn't, you know, a lot of like just real sparkling, knowledgeable, uh, in-depth, uh, you know, expert. Uh, you know, I don't know what the what the description would be, but the candidates that ran this time were not people that people were familiar with. They weren't necessarily people that were coming out with a lot of big, bold ideas or seemed super uh, knowledgeable about local issues. And that's, you know, both the people who lost and the people who won mm. um, across the board. There was, there was perhaps an issue with uh, just the overall quality of the candidates. Do you think, think Shama Sawant be not being on the ballot would make it? difference i mean mm. she's she she runs in one district so there's only right. i mean there's only ever been a very small number of people relatively speaking who can vote for her i mean even if you're like super mad at shama i mean if you live up in district five or in any anywhere outside her you know relatively small district you can't do anything about it right. you can just kind of like rage but it gives it this you know yeah it, it's a it's a it's a she's an interesting person to cover she gets new stories. It gets your dander up about, one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, yeah. But you were saying, Patrick? Yeah, well, I, I've seen a lot of congressional races that have high turnout with really poor candidates, you know? So I really think that this is more of a uh, – this is going to sound ugly, guys, but it's an electorate's priorities issue. I, I just think that people care more about presidential races, congressional races, statewide races than the ones closer to home. Even though in reality, in those local positions, they have greater impact on our everyday lives. So it's kind of a, a weird situation. But I do think that voters tend to view lo local elections as a little more trivial. And maybe because they know less about them, 
but that, but they get very little media spin. coverage too. I mean, the Seattle Times runs, you know, one story that's like, here's what they think on these five issues, and it's the five issues that you know what everybody thinks on, and then that's it. And now then we're also in an era of where people turn to social media and are getting their ideas from there, and I don't think that anybody's talking about local elections on social media in a really informed way. Uh, so as unfortunate, I just I need to because we're the show's almost over. I want to bring that to the point where yes, people are so some people are saying yes, there's so much more attention in these even year that's you know state congressional presidential um, campaigns. So let's combine them and move to have the local elections in even years. Will that happen? Pro con is it going to make us more interested, or is it going to be like oh my god, look at the ballot? It's gigantic now. I mean, I'm the world's biggest cynic on this, probably because I've I've exclusively covered local politics my entire career and focusing on local elections. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. I mean, maybe it'll get more. The the thought is that it would get more progressive candidates elected in local elections because people will be paying attention. Young people will vote. I don't know, man. I mean, you've got a a 10 page ballot. There's a lot of ballot drop off that you see in every election with a giant ballot. So I'm I'm skeptical that it's going to make a huge difference one way or another. And I mean, if you think it's hard for people to like educate themselves or get information on seven city council races right now, if you put those on the same ballot as governor, secretary of state, attorney general, lands commissioner, president, Congress, Congress, you know, I mean, that's a that's a lot of stories that people are not going to read. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see. We are so out of time. I always ask for something to, you know, to leave our listeners. What made you smile? And we're so out of time that I just have to say that what's making me smile is the fact that I know you're going to join us on stage on the 14th. Our year in review show event is coming up. It's an annual fun, and it's at Cornish Playhouse this time around Seattle Center, Thursday, December 14th, 7:30. Find out everything you need to know at kuaw.org/events. And, of course, I smile when I get to see Erica Barnett from Publicola, co-founder and publisher, transportation reporter David Croman, and senior investigative reporter, both from the Seattle Times. Thanks for coming in and being on our show this week. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Great to see you all. Kevin Kniestet produces the show, and Bernard Wallet runs the board and makes excellent music choices and more. And I hope you will be back with us a week from now on the next Week in Review. And see you on the 14th for Year in Review. Support for KUOW 